Hey everybody, it's James Knoll. Welcome back to the Mad Tales Podcast. I hope you all are having a wonderful time. I want to thank everybody who's made it this far for listening to the entirety of The Hive. And if you did, then you just listened to or you have listened to in the past Klaus, which is the final chapter of The Hive. And I hope you enjoyed that one. That one was really, really fun for me to write and uh, also produce it for, for the podcast that you guys just listened to. I just want to take a second here uh, to say hi to some people that I saw a couple of weeks ago at AwesomeCon. AwesomeCon, if you don't live in the Washington, D.C. area, is one of the big Comic-Cons in the area. Anyways, I want to thank Nikki Bragg and Brandon Gould for stopping by my table. Here is a quick note on what I am up to right now. I am currently writing short stories for a new short story collection that will be ready hopefully before the end of summer. I'm about seven short stories in, and I'm hoping to get about 50,000 words. I'm also currently adapting the first novel I ever wrote, Raleigh's Prep, for a movie. That's going to be another three or four months before that's all done. And so that'll be very exciting to see what becomes of that. And so now on to the next series of stories that I have for you. So the next 13 to 14 short stories are a part of the Mad Tales trilogy. It's the namesake of this podcast. The first seven that you're going to listen to are from A Knife in the Back, which is the first book that I ever published. Uh, You've got a vampire story in there, a post-apocalyptic death cult story, haunted house, post-apocalyptic monsters, zombies, serial killer, and because I live in Fredericksburg, I wrote a Rappahannock River monster story. Um, After that, there will be another five to nine short stories, I think. Um, that are in the second and third book of that series. Uh, That's You Will Be Safe Here and Burn All the Bodies. And then following that, you will get the brand new short stories that I'm writing. Like I said, the next 7 to 12. um, Those are currently in production. This round of short stories that you're going to listen to was produced probably about five, maybe even six years ago. It was the first set of audiobook stuff that I ever tried to do. And it was done in uh, an old house, a house that we no longer live in, completely different situation. Uh, So you might notice a bit of a difference in in some of the things that I was doing. It took some risks here and there that were fun, but the stories still hold up. So I'll pop back in here in three or four weeks just to say hi and, and introduce the next one. For now, welcome back to Mad Tales. Beta. Here in the mountains, it starts to snow early in November. So by the time we found dead in a frozen bank one of the local farmers, we all thought it was wolves. Wolves. 
January, the idea is not as comical as you think. Wolves howl around our village all winter. And during the long, brutal seasons, when we are covered for months at a time in a thick carpet of white, they steal across our fences, feed on our livestock. Our village is not completely isolated. A lake lay only a 20-minute walk away, and we are a few hours' ride from the river, and with it the city of P. In the summer, the hills in the river valley are covered with roses, vegetables, fruit, an entire side covered in vibrant gold, maroon, and primary blue, green, and red. It looks like a painter with his brush dabbed into the bottle and dropped thick globs all over the hillside. We have our goats, cheeses, and our wool from our sheep. They come highly prized in the valley and lowlands, and the river affords us trade as deep as Michov. Bedman the Cooper said Wooz had killed three of his chickens the week before, and that one of the shepherds told him some of his sheep had disappeared too. He found them halfway to the river, near the old cemetery, Bedman told us. Not eaten, but cut. They bled to death. A waste of good wool and chops. He spit on the ground. Why didn't you tell us? Someone asked. Why should I? He was just a wolf. My son Han and I went out into the woods and hunted it down. We're not sure if we got the right one, but we killed a wolf. Some of the older men standing around the dead man scolded Bednan for not staking the head on a stick as a warning to the other wolves. But Bednan waved his hand at them and turned away muttering. All evidence pointed to wolves. It is a fact. I am an old man now, and my joints may creak, my eyes may water. But back then I was just a boy, yes, and my mind was sharp, and my eyes were keen. I remember the poor farmer, his throat torn out, his stomach arose in full bloom. His face was more horrific, frozen in wide-eyed surprise, mouth half open. A rivulet of blood painted a crooked line from one corner across his cheek. His arms and legs stuck out of the snowbank, and it looked like he was trying to leap out at us, fingers rigid with rigor and cold. You get the idea. An altogether horrible death. To die like that, no one deserves. The curious thing was the lack of blood. Like the sheep, the lack of blood. Only with the sheep they'd fallen down. Or, or maybe they were just attacked and then left. Or maybe they died and bled out before the carrion fowl got to them. With the farmer, we expected the snow to be saturated black with it. But this was simply not the case. There were some orange stains around him, some red and maroon splatters, but not near as much as should be. It's been a long winter, the constable said. We all looked to him for an explanation. The constable, a fat man with a few wisps of hair stretched over his bald pate, and like the rest of the men, a thick full beard, pouted his lips and looked around at all of us like we were stupid. They're hungry, he growled. The next day was cold and crisp and clear. The constable gathered some local men, shop owners, 
Freshaka the Butcher, Badnan, and a few shepherds, and led them higher up into the mountains to kill the pack what killed the farmer. Bilko the priest blessed their weapons himself, the muskets and swords, the pitchforks and axes, all with rusted red metal or woodworn, handles smooth and worn from decades of use. He, he pitched holy water in the winter air and it stung the men as if they hadn't put gloves on, or if some sprayed whatever skin on their faces that was not covered by hair. I wanted to go, of course, but my mother forbade it, and my father, who probably would have let me, ordered me to help him in the shop. He was a cobbler, and the long, cold winter created an unusual demand for mending boots and shoes. His little shop stank, and the open hearth and ever-burning fire made it worse. Even now, as I tell you this, the smell to my nostrils is remembered. Hot feet and mildew. Burning hair with a spark shot out and singed the wool-covered boots. And beneath that, mud and dirt. Always the mud and the dirt. I moped around the shop like a scorned puppy. My long face, stooped shoulders and deafening silence must have been unbearable. Because by ten o'clock my father sent me out to retrieve some nails from the Kovar son. And leather from the Kozula. He did this because he knew I'd have to go by the inn, which is where all of the news gathered before disseminating into the village. There I could pass the time and wait for the news of the hunting party. What he didn't know was the way also brought me past the butchers and the butcher's daughter, Beta. Beta was older than me by five years, and at nineteen she possessed a beauty unrivaled in all the surrounding villages. Her skin was milky white, and she had long, blonde hair that fell down to the middle of her back, even when she wore a thick parka and woolen hat. Her mouth was wide and lips full, and they were soft pink, and her eyes so blue that they glowed in the night. Beta, her name dripped off my tongue like honey, tasted like sweet red wine. Every man was in love with Beta. Even the married ones, especially the married ones. Uh, but the problem was that she knew it. When she walked through the village, she held her nose so high as if to keep it above the stench of we lowly rabble. And she spoke very little to anyone, or sometimes not at all. She was also very dedicated to God, and spent a large part of her day at the church with Birko. The priest. The butcher was very proud of Beta, and he bragged about her beauty to everyone. His wife had died giving birth to her, so we all gave him leeway with these. There are some who ascribed uh, unnatural things to the pair, but they were shouted down. The idea was unthinkable. And besides, she spent all her free time with the priest. I often strolled by the butchers whenever I could, just to catch a glimpse of her, hoping she might look at me or even say to me hello. On that day, slogging through the ankle-deep snow and churning mud that comprised our lanes, the sun bright and blazing, but the air cold and sharp, I went by the butchers before the inn to see if that would be the day Beta acknowledged my existence. 
It was cold enough to keep everyone in their homes and away from the shops, barring a few of the women hurrying on one or another errand. Or the odd shop owner shoveling snow off his stoop. As I approached the butchers from behind, I heard voices from the slaughter yard where Flyshaka rendered his animals, capturing their blood and inedible organs in a huge stone tub, which he emptied into a fire pit and burned. He kept a barrel there, too, double fortified, in which he sometimes cured the meat. It was huge, and on occasion when he cleaned it, it held hundreds of liters of water. The stench coming from the yard was at all times unspeakable. The voice I heard was high and keening, a whine, as if from a child. It stopped me dead cold. I know, I know, I know, it said. And between that, gasps for breath and hiccup sobs. Don't make me do it again. Don't make me do it. Could that have been Beta? Were the sick rumors of the old lectures at the inn true? What had her father done? I'd kill him. But then I remembered that he was out with the hunting party. No. As I listened, I knew that it was not her voice. Beta, afraid of wolves, afraid of her father who doted on her, was laughable. The voice I heard was Bilko's, the priest. Then another voice spoke up, nothing more than a low murmur. I couldn't discern anything it said, but I understood the tone, at once calming and threatening. And over that came Bilko's whining voice, pleading, No! Of course I do! I'd do anything! Anything at all! More murmuring, and then I heard a whisper of water, as if someone were stroking their hand on the surface of a pool. I had to know who he was talking to, who had made him so upset. How could it be better? Her father, though he loved her so, would thrash her, if he found her alone with a man in the backyard. Flyshaka had built a tall, hand-built fence. I always thought it was out of deference to the rest of the village so that we wouldn't have to see the repulsive course of his work. But his designs were not out of respect, but practicality. He built the fence to keep as many animals as he could from raiding his fire pit and slaughter tub and befouling his workspace. As I said, the fence was sturdy and tall, but Flyshaka was a butcher for a reason, and some of the slats were misaligned. I found a crack and pressed my eye up to it to look inside. There it went wide. My knees went weak. I pushed myself away from the slats and some snow shifted off the top and plopped onto the ground. Sssst! I heard her hiss, but I was already running away. And all of a sudden, I never wanted to see Beta's face anymore. I ran as fast as I could from the slaughter yard, and the image that burned my eyes. I didn't care if she hurt me. At least she didn't know who I was. The constable and his hunting party returned the dust carrying the carcasses of three full-grown wolves. Flyshaka gutted and cut the meat in his slaughter yard, and we had a feast around the bonfire in the middle of the village. The heads were cut off and staked on pikes at three points around the village. Beta sat close to the fire, her cold smile appraising every face of the attendees, meeting their gazes and holding them until they could no longer bear to look 
then moving on to her next mark. I did my best to avoid her completely, but at one point she caught me across the fire. My face flushed and I jerked it away. Then, aware of my obvious guilt, I glanced up again. Beta was still staring at me, her smile like icicles. It broadened and broadened until I could see her teeth. The priest did not attend the feast. Beta went home soon after. The next murder occurred a week later. We had gotten arrogant and careless. The new snow piled another three inches into the lanes, blanketing at least for a little while the black mud in pure clean white. The men resumed ice fishing at night and tromped to and from the inn. Mothers let their children out to chore before the sun came up. The innkeeper stayed open at all hours, working himself around the clock to make up for the custom he lost during the panic after the murder. He gave me a job, calling me his assistant. And while the pay was good, being an assistant innkeeper consisted mainly of clearing the tables of empty mugs and half-eaten food and mopping the contents of the drunk stomachs if they couldn't make it outside into the snow. Still, father allowed it as it brought in a few extra carunas and gave him an excuse to start training my younger brother as a cobbler. They found Bednan the Cooper, east of the village, staked through the heart with one of the pikes we used to mount the wolf heads. His throat was torn out just like the farmer's. His stomach was another rose in bloom. And there was again very little blood in the snow. This time, with no wolves upon which to blame the murder, the villagers' eyes turned on each other. It was at the inn one night, after they found Bedden and the Cooper, working what looked to be my last shift, judging by the sudden drop-off of customers. The men whispered and grumbled, casting gossip as carelessly as a cat toying with a bird. Naturally, it's the butcher. Only he can wield a knife so expertly. Why not the cherug, the surgeon? Did you see the wounds? No respectable surgeon will be caught making such ragged filth. A common beggar would have butchered. Aha, see, a butcher. No, no butcher, no surgeon. Why then, do you mean to say it could have been any one of us? Of course. Where were you yesterday morning? Me? I know what it is. Crowd a voice from the corner. The men at the bar continued to argue and shout. I said I know what it is! The voice cried, cutting through the din. The men stopped and turned their heads in the direction of the voice. It was Martinek, the old blacksmith. His shoulders were wide and rounded, his chest broad, his hands thick and scarred. He broke his arm at the elbow a year ago, and it healed strange. His son had since taken over the iron and anvil, leaving Martinek to recover and dissipate at the inn. Do I have to spell it out? We can't read your mind, Martinek said one of the others. Martinek muttered under his breath and took a swig of beer. Finally, he said, In my village when I was a boy, we had several such matters. We too thought it was wolves. We too hunted a few and pegged their heads on sticks. But the deaths continued. Our constable questioned everyone, jailed a few drunks and travelers. Still, the murders continued, every time the same. Throats torn out, intestines yanked like yarn. A godless old crone, she never went to church. She said it was a, a monster, and beer. Bah! 
his feet on the ground. We all laughed at her. The constable would have jailed everyone in the village, but it wouldn't have done a thing. We would have all died in ourselves. A girl was found dead on the church stoop, only twenty years old, just married. Finally, we started to think about what the old crone said. Some wanted to kill her, but she couldn't be found, so we searched the graveyards. The mausoleum beneath the church, the ruins out in the woods. Finally, we found it in a tomb, in an old desiccated cemetery behind the church, by an old corpse, sleeping in an iron casket in the middle of the day. It had two-inch fangs like a snake in front of its mouth, and long, brown, curled fingernails with blood and dirt crusted under them. Its hair barely covered its withered scalp, strung long and greasy down its back. We pulled it out of its tomb and drove a stake through its heart, cut off its head, and set the body out in the sun. Upir, pa, vampire! It burned to dust in seconds. There was a shocked pause during which I heard the innkeeper, his eyes searching the room for signs of trouble, rubber glass squeaking clean, and the pop and crackle of the fire. And the group at the bar burst out laughing, clapping each other on the back. They ordered another round and gave one to Martinek for the story. He took it begrudgingly and cursed their disrespect as he drank. And when they were done, the innkeeper threw them out because one of them broke a chair. That night, the storm dropped half a foot of snow on the village. In the light of the next morning, as the winter sun burst through the snow-heavy clouds, the miller's daughter, only 19 years old, was found gutted by the creek. The miller swore she'd been in bed the night before, before he went out to the inn, insisted over the howls of his wife and sons that she'd been safe and sound. No, he couldn't remember when he'd gotten home. Nobody recalled seeing him at the inn. They buried her immediately and cleared the murder site, then set a bonfire there to cleanse it of evil. The constable took the miller to jail, but had to let them go the next morning when they found another man, a traveler nobody knew, lying dead on the ashes at the bonfire. The hunt for the vampire started next morning. It was led by the men who'd laughed at Martinek, the blacksmith, at the inn. They stayed up all night first at the inn, drinking beer after beer. Then, after they were thrown out at the ringleader's house in the village, they asked for Martinek to come with them. But he refused. This time the priest did not bless the weapons. Nobody saw them off, bid them farewell. They merely stole out of the village in the near dark, five drunken men slipping and cussing in the churned up mud snow, axes resting on their shoulders. We stayed in all day long. Mother wouldn't let us out, not even father, to go to the shop. By dusk he'd had enough, and he ordered me to the inn for news of the hunt. I slipped out before Mother could object and slogged my way through the lanes, trying to avoid the icy puddles that formed as the sun set. It was dark by the time the inn came into view, only five minutes since I'd left home. The village was deserted. No lights warmed the windows. Only smoke from chimneys trailed into the air. The wind howled down the long lane as I trudged forward, and then I heard other footsteps behind me. I stopped and turned, but could see nothing in the darkness. Who is it? I called, then realized my mistake. Now they knew I didn't know. I have a knife! I cried, 
A whisper of sound came from behind me, and as I turned again, something hard and flat struck me hard in the face. My vision went black, and I was on the ground. Snow and I shot down my jacket. I heard a commotion all around me, footsteps and cursing. A hood was shoved down over my head, and rough hands gripped me by the armpits and feet, and then we were moving. Help! I cried out, my voice muffled in the hood, but no one answered. We jogged forward three more feet, and I struggled, went stiff, kicked out and lashed around like a fish in a net. My kidnappers cursed and hissed, but neither spoke. Finally, I freed my right foot, pulled back, and launched a hefty kick out into the air, hoping it would connect. I hit something solid. My kidnapper grunted, and my other foot was free. You oaf! My other captor snarled. But the voice was high and thick and gruff, and I couldn't make out who it was. Then I heard other voices, manly voices, boisterous and loud. They were singing victoriously, the hunting party. I reached out to grab my other captor and felt my fingers grip onto an arm. He grunted in disgust and pulled away, but I didn't let go. Even as I was dropped to the icy lane, I held on as the kidnapper yanked and yanked. His shirt ripped and I fell free. Footsteps chunked in the snow. Then another blow struck my face and my vision went black. I fell unconscious to the sounds of the shouts of the hunting party as they ran to my aid. I woke on the floor of the inn. My head was bandaged and someone had placed hunks of snow on an old rag and rested it against my temper. My mouth was sore where I'd been kicked. My lips felt swollen. One eye wouldn't open. The hunting party sat at a table hunched over plates of food. Their eyes were red from hangover and effort, and their faces long and pale. A sack hung from the ringleader's belt. It was brown and oily, and something round hung low on the bottom. A dark black stain infused the burlap. I watched as some kind of thick liquid gathered to a head and dripped to the floor. Well? Martinek growled from somewhere. Did you find it? The men at the hunting party dropped their eyes to their cups and planted them at the bottom. Only the ringleader stared straight ahead, sipping froth off the top of his drink. Finally, he said, Yes, we found it. The other's eyes shook up at him in doubt, then a few over at me. I quickly closed my one good eye. Catch what? I thought. A vampire? There was no vampire. The murderers are among us. The ringleader read their unease and put his mug down on the wooden table with a clunk. He stared around at his friends in disbelief. Most kept their eyes glued to the table though one or two glanced nervously up at him like guilty dogs. I said we found it. The ringleader said, We found the vampire. Martinek said, Did you burn the body? The ringleader glanced at him and returned to his beer, but not before letting his eyes fall on me. Yes, he said. Did you cut off its head? A pause. Yes. Martinic eyed the innkeeper who shook his head. He nodded at me. Then let's see it. 
The ringleader set his mug down again inside. Then he stood abruptly up and disengaged from the table. The men there continued to eat in silence, didn't move, fixed their eyes even more permanently to the table. He strode over to Martinek, sitting at his place by the fire, the sack swinging at his side. He bumped his leg as he moved, dripped down his trousers. There were red tracks in his wake. He pulled the rope that cinched the sack shut off his belt, and gripping it by the top, set it on Martinek's table with a thud. Here, he said, and turned his back on the old man. You look. Martinek eyed the sack in the stain and puffed on his pipe. The smoke drifted out of his mouth, past his dry, cracked lips, and over to the fireplace, where the night's heat glowed orange and red. He turned over and over, gray as stone, and mingled with the wood smoke and was sucked up into the chimney and up and out into the night. The constable would not commit to the theory that my attackers were the murderers. Probably just, uh, common robbers, he said. It's no secret that we're under siege here. They're just trying to take advantage of our terror. He took the patch of clothing I tore off one of my attackers. But I could tell he'd do nothing with it. It was just a swatch of cloth to him. Oh, he hauled in for questioning several men, but they were soon released. The vampire hunters left the village after on a legitimate hunting party, looking for meat to last the rest of the month. And into their vampire hunt, the constable probed no further. Still, no one relaxed, and for good reason, too. In the darkening final days of winter, there were three more murders. The first happened two weeks after my attack. A woman was found hanging from a tree near the church. She died of strangulation. That much was clear. But her blood had been drained, too. All that remained were the splatters blossoming in the snow under her brown swinging boots and leading away into the woods like fairy footprints. No one knew her, where she came from, and no inquiries were made in the days that followed about the missing person. Her body disappeared. The second murder was only assumed the farmer disappeared during the night. His body never recovered. And finally, finally, Lord Fleischaka, the butcher. His was the worst. They found his head staked on one of the wolf pikes. His body burned in the snow beneath, charred and black, as if mocking the hunters who'd left the village. They hadn't returned either, by the way, and their wives and families frantically petitioned the constable to put together an armed search party. It was assumed their bodies would show up in the woods after the thaw. And that was it. The thaw came early in March. By April, the lanes of our little village were black again with mud. The hunters were never found. I tried to avoid the butchers as much as possible since the day I heard the priest crying in the low murmuring voice alternately calming and provoking him. In fact, I didn't want to see Beta at all anymore, which was easy as she, like the rest of us, stayed indoors for the rest of winter. But one night, my father killed a deer nibbling on mother's vegetable patch, and he sent me to the butchers to go get some tools so he could process it. No, I said. I said it before I knew it was coming out of my mouth. The smack to my face my father delivered echoed in the spring night. Go, he ordered, and that was that. I approached the house from the front this time. All of the windows were dark. 
The sun had just set, and the cool spring mountain air raised the goosebumps on my arms. In the winter, the wind whooshed down the middle of the village, bringing with it snow dust and dead leaves. In the spring, it is flower petals and fresh pine. Noise from the inn up the way wafted down toward me, men shouting, a fiddle high and merry, the clink of mugs. I thought about returning home without the tools, telling father that nobody was home, but father would have seen through the lie, and the beating I received would leave me more than just the red welt of a handprint to fade on my cheek. I took a deep breath and cast a glance at the inn. Maybe Martinek was there. A raucous shout answered my thought, followed by breaking bottles. No. If he was there, he'd be drunk by now. A useless old man. I heard the unmistakable sound of water as I crept around the side of the house. My spirits sank. I'd hoped the house would be abandoned, and perhaps I could have stolen the tools father needed. But no, there it was again, like someone was taking a bath. The butcher had set stones in the mud as a path around this house, and I used them, thankful that my feet wouldn't make the sucking sound in the mud and give me away. The moon was high and bursting, illuminating the night in its eerie pale light. There were no voices this time, not at first. I found the slat in the fence I'd peered through months ago when I saw them the first time. I'd had my doubts. But after she looked at me during the wolf feast and after my attack, I was sure it was them. They were there again. Beta lay in a large tub her father used to render the animals to catch the blood. The moon painted the water dark and opaque and cast shadows all around the slaughter yard. Bilko the priest stood at the head, looking down at her. As I watched, he produced a ladle from his sleeve. A silver ladle with strange markings on it, and dipped it into the water. He swirled it around as Beta waited patiently, her face serene, her cold smile played across those pale pink lips. Her hair was wet and dark and spilled out over the back of the tub. Birko withdrew the ladle and poured the water over her face, and she let it wash over her. Even in the moonlight I could see... The water left dark red trails across her pale skin. Thank you for tuning into the Mad Tales podcast. I hope you enjoyed this week's chapter. If you cannot wait until next week to finish the story, you can always buy it in ebook and paperback form from Amazon.com, or you can buy it directly from me, both in ebook and in paperback, a signed paperback nonetheless, uh, from my website, www.jamesnoll.net. That's www.jamesnoll.net. And if you would love to support me on Patreon, I would love you to support me on Patreon. 
I'm offering all kinds of cool extras, including access to bonus material, uh, the ebooks released one week at a time, the chapter at a time, uh, customized short stories, and if I can build enough of a following, I want to film a live action version of Make the Hive Great Again, one of my favorite chapters from the Hive. It's uh, at the end of the first season. It's the very last chapter of the of the first season. That would be an awesome thing to do. So, if you want to visit my Patreon page, it's www.patreon.com slash madtails. That would be fantastic. And I will see you guys next week.